Imagine a very cool, very divorced woman has just pulled up to you and yelled out the window of her Honda Odyssey. Rebecca Traister and Dolly Parton are riding shotgun. They've brought safe and sensible car seats for your children. Ted Cruz might or might not be ethered in the trunk. It's all very chaotic. Yet, as you look into their grinning faces, you feel the greatest surge of relief you have ever felt in your life. Hallelujah, your cavalry is here. Welcome to This American Ex-Wife, the podcast where we discuss the state of American heterosexual marriage. And by state, I mean trash fire. And I am your host, Liz Lenz. Before the pandemic, it was relatively easy for most of us to pretend that gender inequality was something out there, a political issue from which we could drive home every day, provided the husbands waiting for us were decent people who just wanted to watch Netflix with us on the couch. But that Rococo nightmare hell year has ripped open the hood of our denial, exposing the truth that was always there. Marriage is the engine of gender inequality. The home is not just a place where inequality creeps in. It's what drives inequality. Now that the engine is on fire, perhaps it's time we thought about taking it out and installing something new. This is not just a podcast that goes around with a dump him crop top on. Not entirely. It's a podcast about understanding the institution of marriage, how it functions in our society, and how we can find our power again. As divorcees know well, the first step toward reclaiming power is letting go of other people's. We must refuse to hold dysfunctional dynamics together just because that's what we've always done, and we have no idea what will happen if we stop. It's okay. Let go anyway. Let go and see what happens next. When I walked in to Allison Werner Smith's office, she told me that because I was there, it was already too late. It was a kindness. Whatever long road I was on was coming to an end. I filed for divorce in the beginning of 2018, and my divorce wasn't finalized until the end of the year In that time, I worked with Allison, who saw me at my lowest and most needy and, well, just craziest. My divorce was a mediated one, and part of the decree read, The parties certify that there has been a breakdown of the marriage relationship and that there remains no reasonable likelihood that the marriage can be preserved. Today, we're talking with Allison about what it's like to work in divorce law what she sees, and what she thinks of this whole marriage thing now that she's ushered people through it. Allison Werner-Smith is a divorce attorney practicing in Iowa City. She graduated from the University of Iowa Law School. Allison helped me through a very tricky time in my life, and I am so grateful to her. She has good sense, wisdom, and some really fun stories to tell us about working in the trenches of middle American divorces. Let's get to the show. Allison, welcome to This American Ex-Wife. Why, thank you, Liz. It is my pleasure to be here with you. Uh, you are married? Yes. Did you always want to be a wife? You know, 
not 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 necessarily. I think I think like most things where we don't know what we're getting into, it it seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh, we're coming up on almost twenty five years of marriage. We met when we were young, and we had children ten years after we got married. Um, it we seemed like a smart match. Uh, we were the oldest children in both of our families, and. Both sets of our parents have celebrated 50-plus wedding anniversaries, so divorce is not a thing in either of our family trees, um, and I appreciate that probably more than, than most people. So how did you get into divorce law then? Well, that is also an interesting question. Uh, my undergraduate major was anthropology. I enjoyed the study of human behavior and culture and what made it different in different places and what was universal. Uh, my father was an attorney before me, and I saw what he did when I was growing up. He would take me with him to the federal courthouse in Sioux City or the Polk County Courthouse in Des Moines, and I would be able to watch him in action, literally speaking to a jury, uh, which is still a rarity these days. And uh, we would travel to the homes of his clients and uh, I have a very core memory of going with him to a woman's home out in the country, and he was bringing her a, a check, a settlement check from the proceeds of her legal action. And I'm sure it was a life-changing amount of money, and I didn't understand most of what I was seeing at the time. But I look back now, and I see that the message that I got is that this is a way to solve problems and to help people. Uh, so when I went to law school, that was sort of my intention. I didn't know what form that would take. I clerked. I had the privilege of clerking at the Iowa Court of Appeals uh, for the recently retired Judge Vaithi Swaran. And, you know, the law was so dry. I mean, boundary disputes, insurance law, traffic citations. And then I read an appellate transcript of a divorce case. And it checked so many boxes. I mean, the stories, the intimacy of it, you know, the true sort of raw you know, what is going on in the lives of other people kind of stories were fascinating to me. And uh, when I was, I secured employment in Iowa City at the same law firm I'm at today. And that was one of my first assignments was to help family law clients because there's so many different types of things that go into that kind of legal practice. It's a great way to learn about all different kinds of law. Yeah, and we talk a lot about like marriage as this big, you know, moment that like brings everybody together. But divorce is also like, divorce also does that, right? You know, that like it, it brings people to their most vulnerable, their perhaps their not best selves um, in a way that I think very few um, things in life do, right? It's, it's amazing to watch the transformations, I guess I would say, from, to, to use your word, the banana pants, right? Yes. The initial start of a situation that I am brought into, uh, to watch sort of the journey that people take and um, how they make their choices and the types of things that motivate them to act. Uh, one of the things I always ask clients when they come in and they usually want to just learn more about what they might be getting into, either dipping a toe in or literally just belly flopping straight into the situation. Uh, you know, it is a process that almost everyone survives. It is generally inevitable once we start. And, uh, you know, how a person chooses to view that journey and what their goals are at the end of the day help 
help me walk with them through that process. And so, uh, yeah, I tell people that I, I've been divorced hundreds of times because I do feel that empathy <laughs> with what everyone's going through, good or bad, right or wrong. You know, I'm with them while they experience that. So, yeah. And I, you know, a lot of what drives people apart are, are the little things. Of course, there are the big betrayals. Um, but in researching my book, you know, it just in talking to people, even if they had a big moment, they would say, but there were always these little things. And it's always hard to know, I think, like, when do the little things add up to a break? And, um, and, and you're watching people at that, like at the beginning of this break, or kind of after they've decided this, how does that impact your own approach to your marriage? It has taught me to really listen, or at least maybe the lesson is I should listen more. I should listen more to what everyone around me is saying and remember that that is their reality. And so you know, it makes me appreciate the little things in my marriage. I probably have a much better point of comparison than most people when the tough times are tough. I can compare it to some of the things that I have seen uh, and realize that you don't have to sweat the small stuff and that, you know, it really is in the eye of the beholder. So, you know, my husband is a, a former debate coach and I'm a divorce attorney. And so we have had to try very hard to learn about how to communicate in, you know, I operate in an adversarial system. Uh, you know, we both, we both flourish in that sort of environment, but not necessarily when we, you know, when our powers activate together. And so just being mindful of where the other person is at a particular point in time, I think is helpful. Um, they, you hear people say that, you know, one in however many marriages end in divorce, but what they don't tell you is the reasons for the divorce. And since the adoption of no fault divorce laws almost everywhere, you know, that's not something that we have statistical information about that's reliable. I mean, I think there's data, but yeah. And there's, and, and people aren't very reliable about knowing, you know, their motivations. I think, uh, researching the book, one of the biggest reasons was just, they fell out of love, you know, but reading deeper, you know, and so some of those analyses, uh, these, you know, academic papers, they're like, well, that could mean anything, right? Could that mean, a betrayal? Like, could that mean, you know, like, what does that mean? And then, you know, there's also a lot of this analysis that says, like, you know, what a person tells somebody on a survey is not actually like the truth about, you know, their life. Because like, what are you going to do? Tell a sociologist like that you were a victim of domestic violence or, you know, or something else? Like, do you feel safe there? So it, it is one of those things. It's just like so hard to know what goes on in a relationship besides the two people who are in it. Right. If they self-identify as a philanderer, right? It's <laughs> right. hard to say. Right. You know, I do I do see some common themes. I, I just looked on back on the fact that this will be my 20th year of practicing family law. And uh, you know, I think that poor communication is generally a theme. Um, infidelity gambling or um, substance abuse issues, mental health issues. And I think failure to commute, having different expectations of one another when children join the family is another huge contributor to the poor communication. And then there are some folks that just, you know, that, that journey has run its course and they're ready to move on. Uh, I've noticed a, a large increase in the number of what they call gray 
divorces. I don't know if your research turned anything up like that, but more than one in three people who divorce in the U.S. right now are older than 50. And I have started doing cases where the parties have been married for 38 years, 45 years, 50 plus years. And their reasons are are different, uh, but it is a very, uh, it's an interesting demographic change. I think a lot of people were culturally expected maybe to enter into a marriage in order to be accepted by their families or in society. And after 40 or 50 years, you know, they see fewer years ahead of them you know, then are behind them and they wish to live a different life than the one that was maybe chosen for them before they could have any agency and they're they're ready to rock and roll. And <laughs> Do you think there's a lot of the mentality of staying together for children? Is that, or are you seeing it even in older than that? Like they've been empty nesters for a while. I'm not sure I would necessarily counsel a client to stay in a marriage until their children were older because I think that's probably, every case is different, but that may not be fair to the children. Uh, that may seem like a good solution, uh, but I guarantee you that if you're thinking about it, your children are aware, you know, of that tension. And so for some people, that's the right choice. There's really no great time to do it. It's kind of like having kids. Like if you wait until you're ready to do it, you may never do it. Uh, some of the literature discusses that losing your marriage is a lot like losing a loved one and you go through all the same stages of grieving. And if if you're going through those stages parallel and in the same sink as your partner or former partner, you're going to resolve your case with dispute resolution and mediation and go your separate ways. But if someone's not on the same track, uh, that can really cause dissonance in terms of how people make choices, how long the process lasts, you know, all of the emotional components that our legal system doesn't do isn't there to help address, I guess. Yeah. And I want to talk about that, but I want to go back to one of the trends you noticed. You said communication. And one of the things you mentioned specifically was communication about roles when a child is born. And you worded it so neutrally, but I want to know what are you talking about specifically with that? Over time, I find that at least, you know, one parent will generally have the perception that the other one is contributing less or has an easier or harder job of it. And those perceptions can be radically different, but yet somehow both true at the same time. Um, and I think every parent want what's wants what's best for their children, but you don't know until you're pretty far in whether you both agree on, you know, the relative net benefits of hot lunch versus a packed lunch. Um, whether the child should take an instrument, whether we're going to have a nanny, whether someone will go back to work part-time or reduce their hours to help another parent, um, finding time for the parent's own individual hobbies and also time for one another. And what I see happening is the, the spouses don't have the time that they had together before. And uh, they won't deny that children need to play a front and center role, but things fall off. You know, there's only so much to go around. Um, so I think I think the lack of a clear plan for how that might work is a, a big contributor to tension in, in parenting. When talking to women, I, I bring that up just because it's something I hear about a lot um, from from women who are mothers and partners. And I think something that's really and I also hear about from men who are like, I do the work. I hear from a lot of men who are like, hey, I'm not like one of those other guys. I'm like. I'm a guy who does the work and I believe them, but I also think we have like different bars. Like you said, like if you are a man and you're doing more than your dad did, I mean, that's great, but also that could be just like you've moved the bar up a couple inch where your partner wants you to meet 
her where she's at. And you literally just don't know what that looks like. You know, we just really have, I think, culturally no concept of what equal partnership even looks like. You know, we're on like such different pages, I think, in gender roles, but also just because people get those ideas from their parents, you know, and so that could just be a lot of different things. And and it's really hard to come together and have those conversations. And then you can think you had those conversations. And then the reality is completely different. Yes. And having having color coded yeah. many calendars for use in court <laughs> proceedings to designate which parent was the on parent during any given time. Uh, I have I have a very vivid memory of a client um, hopping online during a court proceeding and accessing what I would call a perpetual calendar to calculate the exact number of days that each parent would have of their very small children through age 18 under the different sort of competing custodial options that were on the table. Um, I I personally don't think about things like that in those terms, but many people do. It's tough whenever parents end up needing to utilize the legal system to decide very private issues of parenting and values and morals and um, turn it over to someone they've never met for a pretty limited period of time to make what can be extremely permanent decisions. So having a healthy sense of faith in the justice system is great if you think you need me to take your case to court. Well, and I remember you talking me through that a little bit where you're like, you know, you have this idea of what justice and fairness might look like. But if you go to a judge, you know, who is hypothetically, I'm not describing any judges in Iowa in the specific, but who could be an older white conservative man who has a very different idea and that the law doesn't always have a good way of making it even, right? That if if you're going to cast yourself upon the waters, it could go, the current could take you away, (laughs) It, it is it is an opaque system. Um, I will say that the rule of law is a very good thing. I will say that for decades and decades, the state of Iowa in particular has had an excellent reputation in national rankings for the impartiality of our judiciary. Uh, you know, the Iowa judiciary and the Iowa courts rejected the concept of gender-based custodial decisions and you know, fault-based divorce. It's really entertaining to go back and read the very early court cases at the turn, you know, beginning of the 19th century about divorce when when fault was part of what you had to prove. But uh, yeah, I do have a high degree of confidence in our judicial system. But again, it's a credibility determination based on limited information. And they do the best they can with the tools they have available. Uh, but, you know, like all other places, you know, like the mental health system, the court system has a staffing shortage and a funding shortage. And the average family that starts their divorce journey, say today, if they really did need the services of the court to reach a final dissolution of marriage and settle all issues, you know, in some parts of the state, that can be a year or two. And during the pandemic, that was true as well. I love what you said about going into the past. Like, what are those past divorces like? Sure. So many of them occur on in rural farm areas, obviously, because that's part of where people tended to live then. And almost they, they, t- they paint a pretty stereotypical story of, you know, the isolated farm couple where the husband was alleged to have treated the wife with cruelty and beat her when she did not feed the chickens. And she saved her egg money in her apron in order to leave the home and was petitioning the court for her rights 
And uh, you know, he admitted that they struggled maintaining their civility with one another, but that he had only hit her once or twice when she deserved the belt. And they say it with such casual, you know, accuracy that this is, you know, and the court then finds that, as you quoted, the marriage is irretrievably broken and, and the legitimate objects of their matrimony cannot be saved because they stink and hate each other now. And they settle up and the court writes a receipt and everybody goes off to do the next thing. Um, you know, the details in any court case that you might read through the Iowa Court of Appeals or Iowa Supreme Court will generally have a very detailed and personal factual background. Um, it's for that reason that children are always referred to by their initials. But I mean, good grief, it's their parents' names right there. You Google it, it's there forever. Um, and I do warn people about that now. It's one thing when those opinions were in the dusty Northwestern reporters that sat untouched for centuries in law libraries and the basements of law firms moldering away. But now, you know, if you type in the name of a person that has been divorced and they appealed their case, um, it's going to pop up on a Google search. Uh, you can, you know, the public records are limited in certain respects, but when you utilize the appellate courts, um, you know, you're putting your name on it. And so uh, the older cases, the newer cases, it's sort of the same story being told through different eras as people's relationships develop. And now we see more cases, even out of Iowa, where we have, you know, a mobile enough society that we have parents relocating either across the country or to a different nation and how that affects children. Um, you know, the issues kind of track changes in society. Unfortunately, our court system takes a really long time to catch up with technology, with other cultural innovations or changes. And so, you know, it is, it's fascinating to watch that process unfold and help each individual family kind of work through their journey on that. Um, I think it's much more civil now. I think that, uh, you know, people don't necessarily want to be in an adversarial system. And when they do, there are great trial lawyers around the state willing and able to leather, you know, take their leather briefcase and go to court. But the vast majority of people I've represented and their former partners much prefer to resolve their disputes and not go to court. Yeah. It, you know, you talk about the past and then the present. One of the things that I was really surprised about in the past was that in order to get like in the very early days of America, in order to get a divorce, you had to petition the state legislature, which means you had to like go before a body of men and tell them your personal, intimate, private business so very publicly. And ju then, just as now, the majority of divorce seekers in America, and this is a statistic, I think, pretty much uh, exclusive to America, is that the majority of divorce seekers have always been women, have always been the wives um, in the in the heterosexual marriages. I don't have good stats on gay marriage yet. Um but uh, I, it just would make me think, like, at how bad did it have to be for this woman to, like, go before those men? I, I mean, like, I make a living talking about my business. And even then, that would be something that would make me feel so disgusting. Yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, statistically, women are more likely to end up with, um, you know, just a more austere financial situation following the you know, the movement of one economic unit to two economic units. Um, I do think we've come a long way, baby, because there's a lot more women that, uh, you know, are independently able to financially support themselves. But that 
often, I mean, I see a pattern there, that that financial independence often comes with the, the concept that the parents will probably be shared care parents because it allows each parent to maximize their ability to have a more, I would say, a more full life, to have a career that they can afford to save and retire one day, but also have enough time to be invested in their children. And, uh, you know, I, so I think that's a good thing. And, you know, I, there are definitely some groups out there that have, you know, agendas or believe that the system is biased against women or biased against men, what have you. Um, but I do, I think the concept of shared custody of children is, is generally a good idea because it promotes each adult's ability to be invested in themselves. It's not true in every case. Uh, but, you know, more and more, I just see people working really hard together to find ways to make things work when it comes to children. I would almost say that I see these days, especially after the pandemic, I see more people arguing and going to court about money than mm. their children. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that surprised me about joint custody was how much time I actually had. And, uh, you know, I, I, I would say that my ex-partner is a loving, a loving father and cares deeply. Right. So I wasn't, there wasn't, there wasn't like doubt in my mind. I did have problems with, you know, the division of labor as most women do. But I think I, what surprised me was going from, you know, living together and then living apart where I was like, oh my God, this is what equality looks like like you like when the kids are like I can actually work now and because I mean statistically this is not always true um if if a if a woman marries a man he adds eight hours of uh like household labor I, I had expected my life to be you know like more work because I'd seen all these depictions of like oh the poor harried single mother and I did not have a lot of money and 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 then when I remember like a couple weeks into it being like oh my gosh like I have all this time now I can work like I can finish my book I can travel I can I can get more jobs I can earn more money and it it was it changed completely the way that I saw equality and shared care and, you know, joint custody and all that kind of stuff and, and changed how I saw the labor that I had put in. It, it was eye opening. Yeah. It, well, I found, I was looking through my phone before our interview and I found a tweet that I had, had saved and it resonated with me. It was from a, a woman tweeted, my aunt got a divorce and I asked how she felt. And she said, quote, I thought I had an anxiety disorder, but it turns out it was just your uncle. <laughs> and one of my favorite things, I guess I would say one of the most rewarding parts of my job is, you know, years later or months later, I'm out and about, maybe I'm grocery shopping, maybe I'm at dinner and I will run into a former client and they will come up and say, I'm doing great. You know, I... You told me that one day this would pass and I would have a new life and I would be happy and I am and I didn't believe you when you told me and life is good. And, you know, I think that's probably the best part of it because it's not a happy thing. It's not something I like to mention at dinner parties. And if no one when they ask you on the form at the dentist's office what you do. Right. I work at a law office because no one wants to hang out with a divorce lawyer. And that's OK. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's it's not a whole lot of joy, 
each day to walk people through this journey, but knowing that like hopefully at the end of it, it's provided sort of peace and maybe a, a different life for the clients, for their children, and even for their ex-partners, um, knowing that everyone was treated fairly. That's sort of the... Uh, that's sort of the championship ring for divorce lawyers is when someone that you represented, when their ex refers clients to you because <laughs> they thought you did a great job. At least I choose to take that as a compliment when it happens. So, uh, I, 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 I don't know if my ex is going to refer clients to <laughs> Well, there's no discount. So, um, <laughs> You know, I, uh, I, I am always, uh, nothing surprises me anymore, Liz, you know, that just, you never can tell there are all kinds of marriages. We got married and immediately moved across the country together. And I was, it was for my job and I was supporting him which became difficult very quickly. I was in my early 30s and like we had a nice one bedroom apartment, but I've been living in one bedroom apartments like for many years, both in New York and LA. And we were kind of going back and forth about what it would take to get a two bedroom apartment um, like a year and change after we've moved into that one bedroom. I was just in that stage where I was like, it would be so nice to have an extra room. What would that be like to have an extra room? And he was like, like, well, you're for now you want a two bedroom apartment and what's it going to be next? Are you going to want a house? Are you going to want a bigger house? Like, why aren't you ever just happy with what you have? And I, I know now this was coming from a place of insecurity on his end, but um, cause he was having trouble really getting his career off the ground when we just in general, like he made a lot of la- lateral moves. And then when we moved, it kind of put him into a free fall. And I just wanted a two bedroom apartment. And this really just shut me down. And in my heart, I knew our marriage was over. I realized then that we saw the world differently and we wanted different things. And if, if he was spiraling like that about my wanting a two bedroom apartment, um, then I knew we, we were in for some real problems, even like further down the line. So I just felt like I saw into the future in that moment. Allison, can you tell us some of those stories? I know you have, you have like the HIPAA laws for lawyers. Are there, are there some things you could tell us? Yes. I made a list of, I guess, sort of situations that I feel like I've seen. And obviously I am not going to disclose any client confidences. That's an important and sacred duty of a lawyer, right? Is to maintain that confidentiality. But here are some things I've encountered personally through the years um, and I'll, it'll be like a friend's episode. They'll all be the one who, so yes, the perfect. one who buried his gold and precious coins in the front yard and the wife had to get the metal detector to find it and get, dig it up so we could count them and add them to the balance sheet. Uh, <laughs> the one where he was dating her sister. The one where when she moved out, she took every left shoe <laughs> Footnote, they were eventually returned. <laughs> okay, can you, 
can I ask one quick follow-up to that? How hard was it to get those shoes returned? Through dangers untold and <laughs> hardships unnumbered, the left shoes were reunited. You're the best. I love you. Thank you. How about, okay, the ones that disappear when they know the divorce has been filed to evade personal service. I had to have a process. They, the other party has a right to know that the divorce has been filed and the person who files it has to give the other person the papers, which is often quite easy. But if they don't want to receive them and they know that someone's looking for them, they will avoid being served. And I had to pay a process server overtime or double or whatever to serve the person in the Burger King drive through line because they were never home when we tried to serve the papers. So we got her done. There was that one. Um, there was, I mean, some of them are just, you know, the one where he signed her name on the accounts and disappeared with them into the darkness of night. And she learned that she was penniless when she ran her debit card, you know, at the hospital cafeteria line while tending to her small child. Um, the one where they itemized in a 100 page Excel spreadsheet every household item with a picture of the item and an estimated fair market value. And we're talking each and every spice. We're talking 400 coat hangers at two cents a piece. We're talking tchotchkes. We're talking garden gnomes. We're talking cups and plates and boxes of Kleenex. But it was all there. There was that one. Uh, The pet custody cases are a thing. Um, Under Iowa law, pets are considered property. Uh, But many people, you know, will spend, I mean, there is no budget to make sure that they have made arrangements to be with their pets or have visitation with pets that they can no longer have custody of. Um, There's the third time's a charm client who came to see me for her third divorce. I almost gave her a discount, but, you know, each time... I would remind her to come and get a premarital agreement before she came back again, and she never did. All's well that ends well. Um, The one where uh, it's sort of a bizarre love triangle. Imagine a bus stop. On some mornings, dad would take the kids to the bus stop, and he'd meet the mom of the kids down the street, and they got together. And then this is why attorneys have conflict programs to screen clients the other set of the parents also ended up getting together. So it might have been a bizarre love square, not triangle, but it was cross-pollination, if you will. Oh, yeah, they do-see-do'd. They do-see-do'd through that square dance. (laughs) Yes, that's what it was. Um, You know, unfortunately, we we mentioned the gray divorce. There's... More than you think there is catfishing and, and, and fraud that leads to the loss of marital assets. There was a case I handled for the wife where we couldn't figure out what was going on with the money. Like something wasn't quite right. And we were getting bits and pieces of information that didn't seem to check out. And it was a long-term marriage. And as we dug deeper and deeper into the situation to try to understand it, Um, He had been taking out lines of credit and loans and basically sending them to an individual who had catfished him and led him to believe that she was, you know, a beautiful Rhodesian princess who was going to fly into Minneapolis. And then, you know, her flight kept getting delayed. And I mean, it wasn't a couple thousand dollars. I mean, it was hundreds of thousands of dollars and it was gone. 
Um, and so, you know, things like that, that you just can't even make up. Even John Grisham couldn't do it. I mean, if they had seen what I had seen, <laughs> you know, and it's all subject to this, you know, sometimes the clients don't want you to make an issue out of it. Something has happened that is legally really important and they, they don't want to go there for whatever their personal reasons are. So, you know, my job is to give people advice and options. And then if they're not going to do what I think they should do, that's, that's fine. I get used to living with the disappointment, but uh, watching people who maybe in a prior situation didn't have the agency or the capacity to necessarily make choices on their own, um, helping them make those choices and understand why they're making them, like maybe not necessarily from a place of emotion anymore. Um, that's a real fun challenge too. But yeah, I mean, I could go on and on the, the parent who always wore overalls and recorded all of his parenting time with a GoPro in the front pocket of the overalls to show that he was a good parent and then asked to submit, you know, hours and hours and hours of footage of the mundane, um, as support of the fact that he was a good parent, um, you know, the pandemic, I mean, the raging dispute about whether or not to vaccinate children when you have joint legal decision-making power and uh, going to court in a mask during the pandemic to ask for a parent's permission to be able to vaccinate their children over the objection of another parent. Um, what were, know. can you talk a little bit about those um, disputes? Because I, I feel very lucky that I did not have to, um, spend a lockdown with somebody who I no longer wanted to be partnered with. Uh, but I do know I have I have several people who I know, uh, either through journalism or who are good friends who who left who were just like, I can't do this. And it broke them. And it broke their marriages. And, um, and, and, and I think that there's still a lot of fallout from that still mm -hmm. happening. Could mm -hmm. you tell us what you've seen? Absolutely. So um spring break, March of 2020, our law firm had sort of an emergency meeting in our conference room and we realized what was happening and we all went home with our laptops and our dictaphones. And I would say maybe just a little past Easter, the phones started ringing off the hook. We, I had I was so busy, I couldn't see straight. We had all the mail from my office rerouted to my home, and I sterilized it and opened it from a distance and let it sit, and then I read it and scanned it and sent it out, and I'll bet I did, I mean, dozens of divorces where I never actually met my clients, which was bizarre, and they were ready. It's exactly what you said, like, after four to six weeks, something snapped, and they're like, if I needed a sign from the universe, right, this was it, we can't do this must change. And I would say that the degree of sort of no contest, like everybody's on the same page, we just want it over sorts of cases escalated dramatically. And then when the courthouse shut down, you know, either a case festered and lingered until the pandemic was over because of paralysis and inability to deal, or people were on the phone saying, what else do I need to do to get this done? Let's breathe new life into this. Let's get it over with. I don't care what it takes. And so a lot of people were struggling. Um, the amount of domestic violence, I think, obviously increased exponentially and um, you know, made it even harder to do some of the typical sorts of advising that I would do for a client, you know, have them come and meet me in person, assess their you know, demeanor. 
um, talk with them about safety plans. Um, you know, it was, a, I mean, there's a book or a story in there somewhere, but yeah, I think when we see the information, we will see a big surge in pandemic divorces. Um, a lot of issues, I mean, literally people I hadn't talked to in 15 years getting in touch with me because they've been separated for so long, but one parent's choices about how to navigate the pandemic were very different than the others. And, you know, it was obvious that this was going to become an issue for the courts. And uh, I remember when the Iowa Supreme Court issued sort of like an advisory order that was like, if in doubt, you will follow your court order, right? We realize there's no pandemic paragraph in your court order, but your court order is what we have to go on. And no, you're not really allowed to just ignore it because there's a pandemic Otherwise, right, the rule of law is trampled upon, dogs and cats will sleep together, things will fall apart. So I would say that, you know, it's something I think most lawyers navigated. Um, and now that it's over, um, I think it made I think it made a lot of people stronger and better parents because they realized if they could navigate that and everyone generally came out unscathed on the other side, you know, it put other challenges into perspective, maybe. Yeah. In, in like a if both uh, parents did not agree on a vaccine. How were the courts deciding that or or what was the guidance there? Sure. Um, well, it's, it's really interesting. There's a very recent Iowa Court of Appeals case, if anyone's interested, um, and the Supreme Court may or may not be taking a look at it, um, in remarriage of Frazier. And in that case, it talks about how, you know, when parents have a joint legal custodial obligation to vaccinate or not to homeschool or private school or public school, to get the nose pierced or get the, you know, braces or not, when the parents cannot decide, I read the case law and I was saying it is an inherent function of our court to serve, unfortunately, in the tie-breaking capacity under a best interests of the children standard is what our case law says. And that is a very squishy, ambiguous standard, but properly so. It allows for that subjectivity and the findings of fact that we all need. And so um, my experience has been that if a parent wanted to do that, even if they were the primary caretaker, right, they needed permission from the court on a limited basis to take an action in their sole capacity that would typically be reserved for joint action. And to do that, they had a burden of proof to show the court that it was, in fact, in the best interests of the children and, you know, science. Um, but there were a lot of PowerPoints that I had to sit through at the courthouse about how, you know, we that was not best, that that was wrong. And then it was in the hands of our, you know, merit-based selection committee who appoints all of our judges in Iowa this time. Those men and women made the call about whether for those specific children in that specific family, whether it was or wasn't in the best interest. And I did see courts authorizing the vaccine. It normally required some sort of, you know, physician's recommendation because, you know, None of us are doctors, um, but it's tougher when it's more nuanced, right? It's not just black and white. There was a parent, I recall, who, uh, you know, their child had a particular medical condition and they were waiting for a different type of vaccine to be FDA approved or wanted to try a different sort of therapy if their child got COVID. And I mean, respectfully, like they just saw that as two different sorts of value premises. But yeah, when, when that can't be decided that's unfortunately the role that then the courts have to step in as what is the the Latin word is parens patriae, right? They become the parents and substitute their judgment. And that can be a pretty big motivator for a lot of people who are having a, a dispute about how to handle any kind of, you know, issue in their parenting plan, which is, well, 
I think the two of you could probably do better, right, than, than an outside party. Um, a lot of people are scared or don't, they don't want the government meddling in their lives any more than they have to. And that is also a great motivator for dispute resolution. You know, have some ownership over it, have some skin in the game, or take your chances and rely upon the opinion of another, which incidentally is why it is so important that we maintain a system of merit selection for our judges and not elect them by popular vote. Um, mm. Just putting a plug in there for judicial <laughs> independence while I have the floor. We love judicial independence. And, you know, shout out to Iowa for you know, maintaining judicial independence, uh, being pretty good at it, and being a leader in interracial marriage and no-fault divorce. Um, we don't get enough credit for um, for that. Go Iowa, I think is the lesson we can all take away here. You know, and I, I you know, I have friends all over the country and there are friends in New York who were talking about the the nuances of divorce law there. And I just remember thinking, like, I'm so actually happy I'm getting divorced in Iowa because it seemed comparatively so much more clear cut, you know, even and uh, and yeah, I'm happy. <laughs> so. Well, that's that's a great uh, that's a great way to be, right? <laughs> yes. Um. I want to ask you, and I know we've gotten a little bit off track, but I want to ask you, how did you? You had a little speech for me. I remember when I sat down with you. How did you develop that that talk? And I'm sure it's I'm sure it's been finessed since I saw you last. I kind of make it up as I go along, but the story that I I like to tell, or the speech I like to give is the one about, I guess you would call it the power of positive thinking, that everybody comes in talking to me feeling defeated or scared or angry or some combination of what we might say are non-positive feelings about their self, their family, their life, their personal situation. And one of the things I like to remind people of is like how strong they actually are or will become and that if they choose to view this process as something that is empowering and is going to lead to something better that they want, that is exactly the experience that they will have. And if they dread it and assume it's going to be a disaster and high conflict and stressful and their heart is going to start to race whenever they see an email from me you know, they won't necessarily make good decisions for themselves. And so what I've done now is I ask people if they're going to work with me to start a list of goals and things that they want to be able to do both for themselves or maybe their family or just in their life, like a better bucket list than they've ever made. And then we talk about how this process, which is distasteful, like most of the time, how this is actually something that will help them get there. And that helps us focus on the things in the Venn diagram of, of divorce things that we can actually change or, you know, contribute to, because there's this universe of things that we care about when we're getting a divorce. And then there's this universe of things that the law cares about when you're getting a divorce. And when you put superimpose those two universes over one another. You have this tiny, tiny crack in the space-time continuum that will be your divorce agreement. So you might as well use it as an opportunity. And I do that to pump people up. I'm not a therapist. I love it when my clients have a therapist, but it is unavoidable, uh, unavoidable that you will need to vent and talk to me about what you want. So it's kind of like the... The picture you see hanging in old ladies' houses with the poem about Jesus where the footsteps were on the beach and he was walking along with me. Yeah. 
Do you yes, know what I'm uh, yes, about? I do know that. Yes, and it like where yes. where there was only one set of prints. That's where I carried you. Yes, yeah, <laughs> so you my Jesus? martyr complex is totally <laughs> activated sometimes, and maybe I bring that home some days. I don't know, but uh, you know that is the best part is seeing. I mean, I guess for me is to see people at like their worst, right? Their banana pants phase. <laughs> And then watch that person gain confidence in themselves and hope in the future. And that was another one of the best things that I ever heard from a client. He called the office for something years later, a copy of his paperwork or something. And they were like, well, thanks for calling back for Allison. He said, she gives people hope. And I had never characterized my role in my own mind as doing that. But that was a game changer for me. So, you know, knowing that I can maybe spark that that thing with whatever I do, I kind of make it up as I go along. So, you know, the talk is just an evolving adaptive talk for people, but I love to give it so that people walk out of my office feeling better than they did when they came in. I, um, I love that. And I, 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 I think that's one of the reasons I wanted to write this book, right? Where I I didn't want to just write like a dishy memoir and then get sued about it later. What I wanted (laughs) to do was to like write a book that said you know the system is stacked against you like heterosexual marriage is kind of inherently unequal and you can have a good relationship in a bad situation but also that it is just as empowering to do to get to the other side of this and I think that that is something that is not the narrative that we talk about through divorce it's like messy it's awful everybody's bad you're crying on the floor and that's true but like what you said on the other side it's so empowering to to say I was in a bad place I left because I was unhappy and now I can make choices for myself and I, 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 I can't imagine anything better it's it's a very brave act for someone to take that step. And uh, I'm glad to hear you say that a lot of women, you know, are the ones that are filing. But, uh, you know, it's it's never a happy thing. You know, I'm not into the the divorce party. I don't send people a divorce paper scented candle. You know, <laughs> I, I don't do those things because, it, I mean, it marks a somber moment in someone's life. But it's also an opportunity for change. Um, you know, I, I have also had cases where I've divorced a parent and their adult child comes to me for a divorce. And, you know, it, the fruit doesn't fall too far from the tree. People, people model the behavior they see from their parents, right? Whether it's problem solving or how they are in a relationship or whether they're faithful to that relationship. And, you know, you really do see a lot of, of history repeating itself there. And so children who live through divorce, I think are really the silent majority in this, you know, entire cultural norming of what a divorce is, because I don't get to see if the choices we made ended up benefiting those kids, or if they wish we had done it differently, or if we truly did act in the best interest of the children. Uh, And so I, I think about all those, those nameless, faceless children a lot. You know, I don't, I don't generally meet my clients' children unless we run into each other at the high V. And, uh, and then it's like, hi, I'm your mom's friend. Right. And that's as yeah. far, you know, but I, I think about those kids a lot and, and whether what I did helped them have, a, you know, better opportunities or a better life. And, you know, I guess that's all you can really hope for. Yeah. I want to end because we're coming to the end of our time. I want to ask, like, hypothetically, not that this would ever happen, but put yourself in this situation. You're at Efron's 
wedding shower. You're a little tipsy. Good friend. Good, good friend. Not like, you know, some stranger who you might just keep your mouth shut and move (laughs) on. What kind of advice or perspective are you going to give this person about to enter? Which marriage is so much easier to enter into than ending a marriage. It's It's so hard to end a marriage. So easy to get one. What would you tell this person? Are you just like looking at her over your margarita and being like, prenup, prenup? Like, what are you saying? No, if I thought that I'd be drinking a vodka cranberry, oh. but, but that's that's not me. But, uh, you know, that seems like the typical divorce lawyer lady drink to have, right? It's a gimlet or something. A, gif- a Pim's cup. Okay, so I think I would think about saying a couple of different things. I'm not sure. I think one thing I would say is, you know, it's not always going to be this, you know, it's not always going to be what you think it's going to be. Uh, However, it's a lot easier to hold this marriage together than to try to put it back together when it falls apart. Right. So you need to listen. Even if you don't agree with what they're saying, you need to listen. You always need to admit and say you're sorry if you're wrong. You know, the whole don't go to bed angry, all of those things inside the back of your mom's church cookbook, right, about an ounce of love, a sprinkle of care, like you really are committing to be be there for that person when they're the better part is great. It's the worst part. It's the in sickness part, whatever form that sickness takes, where like when you say those vows, like get ready, right? Like buckle your seatbelt because it is going to happen and you don't know when and you don't know what form it's going to take, but like wonder twin powers activate, right? I mean, ride off into the sunset together and do not lose sight of that other person. Like hold on as tight as you can. And, you know, for every dollar that's been spent on a divorce lawyer, you kind of have to wonder out loud what, what would have happened differently if they had spent that same amount of money on marriage counseling or therapy and it won't save every marriage and it may not change anything for some people, Um, but you know, you're, you're choosing to join forces with another person. And so if I've had a couple drinks at that wedding shower, I will look right at them and say, when you choose, choose well, right. And if you make a mistake, you need to, just like we tell our kids, if you make a mistake, you got to admit it and, you know, give yourself, you know, the space to say that. So I don't get invited to a lot of weddings or showers. I, I have my speculations as to why that might be, but, uh, you know. Um, I don't get invited to a lot either. <laughs> I mean, well, I don't even have to have a drink to sit there and go prenup. Um, my I, secret, my secret fantasy, which I will not act on, but I will share with you here yes. on the podcast is to, you know, those bridal shows that they have at the convention centers where you can sample cake and there's dresses <laughs> and the DJs. And I want a booth. <laughs> I want a booth with my business cards and I want to talk to people about prenups and estate planning and financial planning and scare the living you know what out of people with their parents present just to make sure that they're, you know, 
you know, picking out the colors for that too, right? Yeah, we should have a waiting period for marriage. Like, instead of being able to get a marriage license that day and then go for it, like, we should make people wait as long as they have to wait for a divorce. You gotta wait 90 days in Iowa. Yes. Yeah, think about it. There's almost no state that has a waiting period for marriage except for Wisconsin, I think, but almost every single one has a waiting period for divorce. It's just like... What if we flipped it? Um, <laughs> I want you to have that booth at the fa- at the at the bridal expo. I just want you in like an all black booth, handing out your business cards, being like, "Listen, it's Allison." <laughs> This American Ex-Wife is a podcast created by me, Liz Lenz, and Zachary Oren Smith the benevolent, overseeing eye of the patriarchy. If you liked what you heard, you can buy my book, This American Ex-Wife, which will be published on February 20th, 2024. Look, pre-orders really help determine the success of a book. I know, I know, publishing is confusing, but trust me. You can pre-order the book through your local bookstore, bookshop.org, or wherever books are sold. Thank you so much. And may I leave you with a benediction. May the dresses we burn light the way. I think we smoothed, 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 smoothed it. Tis, tis smoothed. Tis uh, roughed out. <laughs> it's truly terrible. Uh, Cancelable. Is- <laughs> Unsafe work environment. <laughs> Now that we're in a work environment, this is good. I can now that you're paying 150 dollars an hour, um, you know. Now this is I can see you. Stop wasting my time. <laughs> <laughs>